praying into what I was going to talk about this morning, I, I've kind of been bouncing around, and we're going to go with what I gave the sound crew. I intended to preach last night, and I had something different planned this morning, um, but I really feel like I'm just going to just share with you what's burning in me instead of just trying to give you one of my top 10 sermons, because I can do that, and, and, um, and, and that'd be great, and I'm sure it would bless people, but, but I'm just going to give you what's really burning in me. Uh, before I jump into this, just kind of the sense that I was getting in that last little portion of worship, and I know we were talking and singing about, about religion and tradition, um, I, I, I want to remind some of you that may be struggling in this room, and I know it's Sunday morning, so there's usually always a couple in the room that kind of struggle with, with the volume, the noise, the shouting. You know, I deal with that even in our church. You know, there's, there's um, you know, everyone has preferences, don't we? We all have preferences, but our preferences really are irrelevant when it comes to the Spirit of God. For example, um, I can tell a lot about a person by just spending a few minutes with them in their home. Not in a coffee shop, in their home. I, I could find out about Kevin and his family if I step into his home. How they decorate their home will tell me a lot about who they are. You come into my house, you're going to find out real quick. There's shotguns and there's deer heads and there's like dead animals everywhere. You will find out. You could, it's, easily, it's easy to identify who I am by stepping into my living room, stepping into my, my den, stepping into my office, you know, thousands of deer sheds and antlers everywhere. And it's, it's very easy. You can find out who someone is by stepping into their living room. And the Father gives us a very good description of who he is in Revelation chapter 4 when he gives us a small glimpse inside his living room. There's a throne that he sits on. There's 24 elders around that throne. There are six-winged beasts with eyes all over them, inside and out, that fly around his throne. There is lightning and there is thunder. And can I tell you, church, it is not some quiet environment where we just bless God. Have you ever been in a thunderstorm? You're, you're from this region. You've been in a thunderstorm. Have you ever heard like the ground shake because of thunder? Felt it? Terrifying at times. Add six-winged creatures flying around the throne. Add lightning. Add the roar of the, of the sea of the cloud of witnesses to that picture. And that's a glimpse of what, of what the Father's living room looks like. In essence, he sits there and he's comfortable in that environment. He's comfortable with shouting. He's comfortable with wild things going crazy in the presence of the Lord. You know what? I really have, I've had a word for Canada for years. The Lord is wanting to undomesticate you and, and rewild you back into your original design. You're not made for Sunday morning Christianity as a domesticated house cat. No, the Lord wants to loose you into your wild nature. Wild and free. Wild and free. You know what? That manifests itself in worship. That's why when the ground began to shake in here, it actually did. Like I felt the floor moving. The projector screen is bouncing. I'm like, man, this is awesome. Like we're seeing, let the ground begin to, the ground is actually shaking. <laughs> Yeah. 
And if you're stuck in religious tradition, it'll offend you. Because wild things always offend religious tradition. You know what, you know what religion really is? Religion is this. It, it, in a, in, a, in a, just a very simple explanation of religion, religion means this. Try harder. Try harder. If it's not working out for you, just try harder. And we get ourselves on this treadmill of performance, trying harder in religion. And if we would just embrace who the Father says we are, step into what makes him comfortable. Yeah, you ever, you like, when you have, you have, how many of you are married in the room? Hallelujah. A lot of married couples. How many of you get your spouse a present that you want? So there's some honest hands actually going up. Like, like, you know, I do the same thing. I bought Nikki a brand new 30 6 Winchester rifle for Christmas. I, I did. I was like, you know what? We've got more rifles than we know what to do with, but we need another. She needs another one. And I bought her this rifle. Actually, I got her one for her birthday and for Christmas the last couple years. And so, and, and, and it's this idea of I'm going to get you a gift that, that I want you to have. You know, we do that in church all the time. We bring God something that we think he wants instead of what he actually wants. We give God worship that we think thinks he wants and, and we sing to the degree that we thinks, think that he, he wants instead of saying, Lord, I am a living sacrifice. I'm a vessel that is meant to honor you. I'm going to come in the presence of God and I'm not going to worry about if my mascara is running down my face by the time I leave. I'm not going to worry about my weave, my hair. I'm not worrying about any of it. I'm going to get wild in your presence because that's what I was born to do. That's what I was made for, created for, to be a vessel of worship. Well, I wasn't going to talk about all that. I guess all that's for free. Let me jump into what I'm really here to talk to you about. I um, started to just take some notes leading into these meetings, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to talk about what he's doing in Canada. And if there is a title to this, it would be called Mass Deliverance. Mass deliverance. Um, I was cut from the cloth in the early era of my salvation. I got saved in Polk County Jail at 19 years old. Hopefully that doesn't scare anybody in here. I'm a changed man. Um, <laughs> and, and was radically delivered from a lifestyle of addiction, of, of just crazy, just worldliness. And when I was 10 months in the county jail in Polk County, Florida, um, and this is back in, in um, 2001, 2002, and got radically touched, radically saved in there, radic baptized in the Holy Spirit. My, my family was not spiritual or religious. We, we would identify as Christians. We weren't. We went to church Christmas and Easter. I call, we called ourselves Christers. Like, it, we'd show up late, leave early. I had no real understanding of the Bible, never opened the Bible in my entire life. I had a grandmother that was Southern Baptist. If you, there's Baptist and then there's Southern Baptist. Like, it's, it's, it's a whole different Baptist when you're Southern Baptist. And my grandmother was really a faithful Southern Baptist. And um, I can remember getting saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. None of my family had any grid for that. I shook under the power of God for about 24, 24 hours in, a, in, in my jail cell, literally having to get up and use the washroom and go to eat, try to eat breakfast, and shaking, I could not stop praying in tongues. There was just such a measure of glory on me that 
it, like guards wouldn't get around me, inmates wouldn't go near me. Nobody knew what was going on. I didn't really understand what was going on. All I knew is that I was being filled with God in a very tangible, powerful way. And my identity was given to me in that moment. My destiny was given to me in that moment. I knew that my life from this point forward was called to preach and explain this majestic, beautiful God that I've just encountered. And so for 10 months, I would literally start. I had no grid for preaching. I would lay in my bed all day, read for about 10, 11 hours a day. And then after dinner time, I, I, I told all my, my roommates, there's about seven or eight of them, I said, guys, here's the deal. Um, God lives in me now, and this room is now the church. And if you don't like that, you can live. Some people moved out and traded rooms with people and, and left. And we would take all the bunks and turn them into pews. And, and after dinner, I would stand on the top balcony of that, of that dorm, and I would yell with a loud voice, it's church time. It's church time. All that want to hear the goodness of God come to this room. And, you know, the first day there was like two people that were curious to want to see what in the world I was talking about. And I preached my heart out for about a whole four minutes. And, and I think they, I don't even think they got saved. But every day I did that and something started happening. People started getting touched and healed. And, and every day, like we didn't even have enough room to fit in there. We had to meet down in the middle of the door. And every day I did this for 10 months. And we watched thousands of people get saved. Thousands of people get, get just really radically touched. And some of these people are pastoring churches now that I'm still in contact with. And, and just a phenomenal start. So I get out. I, 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 I start walking out, uh, serving in local churches, fathers that the Lord connected me with, and, and started to experience something. And in the southern, southern region, it's very common down there, I started really experiencing deliverance ministry. And I mean like old school deliverance ministry, you know, where wasn't uncommon for meetings, somebody to be slithering on the floor like a snake and all the ushers getting out puke buckets and stuff like that. And, you know, and, you know you'd have somebody like coughing up a hairball like a cat. Y'all don't know nothing about that up here. Huh? But anyways, old school. I cut my teeth in that era. You know, it was all about getting people saved and getting the devil out of them. Then getting them filled with the spirit. And that was, that was the foundation of my life as a, young, as a young preacher. And we saw numerous, numerous times this happen. And people get delivered of demons and, 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 and crazy, crazy stories I'm not going to get into. But I started thinking about that because over the years I watched people go through dramatic encounters and dramatic deliverances, but yet get up and go right back to the same person they used to be. Watched that hundreds of times. I've got friends that are dead now because of that, that experienced the touch and power of God, but got devils cast out of them, and, but reverted right back to who they used to be. Over the years, I've pondered on this so much, and I think I've really come to a, a conclusion of why this is. There is such an inadequate revelation of the perfect love of God that the church has given over the years that that if you can get the devil out of someone, but they don't know who the Father really is, and they don't understand the love of God and who the Father really calls them, they are still an orphan, wandering, trying to find love, but just in all the wrong places. I really believe by the Spirit, the Lord wants to bring mass deliverance to this nation. Mass deliverance to the nation of Canada. Although it's not going to look the way that and how I was brought up, how I thought that would look. I've been in services where mass deliverance would take place, and I'm sure you have overseas and things like that, where you just see 
demons just coming out of everybody. I really believe the Lord wants to bring mass deliverance to this nation. I don't think it's going to look that way, though. We sang about this in the beginning of the service, the enemy's been defeated. We proclaim that, but many Christians spend their whole life believing that the enemy still has power. We sing songs, the enemy has been defeated, death couldn't hold you down, right? But so many of us believe that Satan still has a measure of power in the earth today over the believer. I'm here to tell you, friend, he does not. He absolutely does not. I saw this image on Facebook one time, and it really, I'm in, I'm in your, your church, so I'm not going to say it the way I wouldn't mind. It really irritated me. And the picture was this description of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. And it was like this, both of them had massive biceps and veins popping out, and it looked like this intense struggle. And, and I thought to myself, this is the shallow view that most of the church has. That, that Satan is the opposite of Jesus and they're at these two forces still fighting in the earth today with equal power. And friend, that is the farthest thing from the truth. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 in the Passion Translation. I'm a Bible guy. You're going to get a lot of word this morning if that's okay. It says here, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record, hallelujah, and the old arrest warrant. I know something about this church that stood to indict us. See, see, I know when you get in trouble with the law, there's a record that follows you that even if you get it cleared and expunged, there's still someone with enough power that can press a couple buttons and find out everything about your history. There's, if you've ever had a speeding ticket, if you've ever been in trouble, you've ever had a violation, that is somewhere on a trail following your life. Here it says he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul, and he pressed delete on that computer in heaven and there is nothing that can pull that and resurface that back up. He deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. That's called being expunged. They cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Verse 15. This is amazing. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness. Watch this. Stripping away from them every what? Not, not some weapons. Not three quarters of his weapons. E the, the amazing thing about the word every in the Greek is it really means every. Every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. This is foundational 
warfare teaching right here because there's so many believers, they love warfare. You ever get around warfare Christians? It's going to drive stakes in the city corners and wave flags and prophesy to the four winds. And, and that's fine. You do you. Blow a shofar 19,000 times and, and, and bind the spirit of Jezebel. Do you. For me, I'm just going to believe that every weapon that Satan once had has been taken from him, stripped from him, and God has now given me power over the enemy, not the enemy power over me. Satan, number one that I want to give you, is disarmed. He's disarmed. He has no power because he has no weapons. So how does Satan then operate in the life of a believer? Because you still see believers bound. Bound. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall do what? So if truth sets you free, what keeps you bound? Lies. He's the father of lies. The only thing he has to use against the saints are lies. He has no power to give you sickness. He has no power to give you disease. He has, obviously, we know that it's not of God. Sickness and disease many times are a result of a fallen world because the church hasn't stood up to its place of dominion and said, you know what, done what all creation is groaning out for, the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. You ever think to yourself, why did God put a serpent in the garden anyways? That's not the right question. Why did Adam allow the serpent in the garden? When he gave him dominion over everything. A lot of what we deal with is a result of us not walking in who we actually are called to be. Not that Satan has power. He has no power. All he has to work with are lies. So God's going to give mass deliverance, I believe, and it's going to be un untethering us from, from, from the old way of thinking and the lies that Satan tries to bring. Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2. Romans chapter 5. I really want to build off this foundational scripture here this morning. Our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and now he declares us flawless in his eyes. This is the number one lie that the enemy tries to get the saints to believe that you are not right with God. When this scripture, Paul says in Romans, our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and now he declares us flawless in his eyes. Let me tell you something, friend. From the first second you got born again, you are just as righteous. You are, you are no more righteous if you do a 40-day water fast, hide in a cave, pray in tongues for 14 days straight than you were when you first got born again. You are equally as flawless in God's eyes. You can't grow in righteousness. You only grow in your understanding of righteousness. Our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and now he declares us flawless in his eyes. This is what I'll tell you, Chris Mathis' translation of that scripture. The father sees you the same way he sees his son. What if we believe that? Like, that we didn't see ourselves as just these, you know, we, we're just down here, and I know you call me a son, but I really feel like I'm a worm, and you really are very far off, and you don't really care about me. What if we really believed that he sees me the same way he sees his son. Put, throw that scripture back up, please. Faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and now he declares us flawless in his eyes. This means we can now enjoy true and lasting peace with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, has done for us. Verse 2, our faith guarantees us permanent access into this marvelous kindness. 
There it is. That has given us a perfect relationship with God. You know what the enemy wants you to believe? That your relationship with God is not perfect. Because of your struggles, because of your weaknesses, because of maybe mishaps in life, and the enemy wants to highlight those to create a stronghold in your thinking that makes you think, well, I'm separate from God now. We, and we've preached this in, for years in, in the church. Sin separates us from what? God, right? How many of you have heard that? Sin se- No, it does not. Are you kidding me? Adam fell, and the first thing that the father did was go looking for him. It's like, we, we say things like, God's so holy he can't look upon sin. He would have been done with the world a long time ago if that was true. Tell that to Enoch, who was under, under a fallen era. There was, no, there was no propitiation for his sins yet, and Enoch had a revelation that, you know what, the Father loves me, and he's chasing me down. We have these beliefs that are ingrained into our thinking that keep strongholds, lies in our, in our internal world that keep us from really functioning in true peace, true joy. Our faith guarantees us, it says, permanent access into this marvelous kindness that has given us a perfect relationship with God. What incredible joy bursts forth with us as we keep on celebrating our hope of experiencing God's glory. So three things that I believe God is going to do in this nation in Canada of what he's bringing deliverance into. Number one, mass deliverance on how God is viewed. Mass deliverance on how God is actually viewed. And when this happens, this is the first layer, I believe, of, of, of everything because how you see God is the most important thought that you have in your life. You can't see yourself right if you don't see the Father right. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7 says this. This okay? You guys okay? Yeah. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7 says this. And in love, he chose us before he laid the foundation of the universe, because of his great love, he ordained us so that we would be seen as holy in his eyes with an unstained innocence. There it is again. He sees you the same way he sees his son. For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children. I love that. He delights in you. Through our union with Jesus, the anointed one, so that his tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace. For the same love he has for the beloved Jesus, he has for us. There it is again. He sees you the same way he sees his son. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure since we are now joined to Christ and have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood, the total cancellation of all our sins, all because of the cascading riches of his grace. You guys are a house that's connected with Bethel. You would have heard this right here before. Why did Jesus come? To reveal the Father. It's the only purpose he came, was to reveal the Father. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor Chris, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus come to die on the cross for my sins? That was not his main purpose. That was a byproduct of his main purpose. That was not his main purpose. His main purpose wasn't to die on Calvary for the sins of the world. That was a byproduct. That was a demonstration of revealing to the world who the Father was. I'm going to help you today. This will help you. This, Jesus came to reveal the Father's love. 
I'll prove it to you. John 17, 4. John 17, 4, Jesus says this. I have, he's praying. This is, a, this is actually the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not the one that we know of. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's actually the Apostles' Prayer. Because Jesus never sinned. And if it was his prayer, he wouldn't have had to ask God for forgiveness. This is the Lord's Prayer right here, John 17. He says, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. Jesus is making a public declaration in prayer to the Father, I have finished. It's done. I've finished. Wait a minute. He didn't go to the cross yet. He said here, I have finished. At Calvary, he said, it is finished. I have finished and it is finished are two different things. I have finished the work which is the work that Jesus really came for, which was to reveal who the Father was. It, it finished, means the old system of the old demanding covenant was over. That era is done. The old covenant, it's very interesting. People, people don't really understand this a lot because the, the old covenant was the law, for example, was not given to make you and I holy. It's impossible wasn't given to make us holy. The law was actually given to make us realize how deprived we actually really are and how much we need a Savior. That's why the law was given. It wasn't meant to make you holy. You could, like, fulfill all the law. Yeah, right. Jesus was the only one that ever did it. He came to reveal who the Father was to a world that didn't understand who the Father was. Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the Old Testament, God was never even called Father to an individual. I think two times, maybe three, he was referenced as the Father of Israel. Every other time, they called him other names like Yahweh, like Jehovah Jireh. They called him all these names that described who he was. Jesus comes on the scene and blows everyone's mind by saying, Abba. Jesus never called him God other than one time, and that was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Every other time, he, he didn't even call him Yahweh. He called him Abba. Why? What was he saying? It was breaking every religious traditional paradigm. They didn't understand Abba. They understood Yahweh. They understood Jehovah Jireh. They understood the description of who God was, not actually the heartbeat of who the Father is. So my wife, for example, she cleans my clothes and she cooks my food, but I don't call her my cook and I don't call her my cleaner. Pretty wise, isn't it? But yet we'll call God Jehovah Jireh. That was, that was a description in the Old Covenant in the shadow books. They did not have a, they did not have a superior revelation. Even the law of Moses. I'm gonna, I don't know if I should go here or not. The law of Moses is just that. The law of Moses. <laughs> I'm going to pump the brakes on that one. Maybe I'll get to that next time. I don't want to be called a heretic just yet this early. 
Jesus on Calvary said, it is finished. The old covenant was finished. The demand system was finished. This causes us, when we understand this, the difference between old and new covenant and what that actually means, the fulfillment of Jesus being the full manifestation of God to the earth. Jesus making the what would have been the most absurd statement that was ever recorded in their day. When you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. Bill Johnson, a father to, to this family, says this, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. If you cannot find it in the life of Jesus and you think it about God, it's garbage, get rid of it. We try to still discern who God is through reading the book of Job. We try to discern who God is by reading the Old Testament. Not that the Old Testament doesn't have its place, but if you have any, any understanding of the Father absent of Jesus, Jesus, when he showed up, he didn't say, guys, if you really want to learn who God is, let's open the book of Job. No, he said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Look at my life. Look at what I do. Watch how I have compassion. Watch how I have grace. Watch how I show mercy. Watch how I show love to the lowest and the outcast. Watch my life, and when you see me, you've seen the Father. So this causes us to see stories in the Bible completely different. This causes me, when I started to gain this understanding deeper, even reading the parables completely different. Because we have, we have parables in the Bible and we have these titles in our Bible that really are poor descriptions of what Jesus was trying to communicate. For example, the parable of the young rich ruler. He was not a young rich ruler. He was a poor young slave. He was a slave to his possessions. The parable of the prodigal son is not about the prodigal son. The whole thing is about the loving father. Actually, let's read that one. Luke 15, 11 through 31. I really like this one. Because this is, I believe, the perfect picture of who the Father is. And this is what the Lord is coming to Canada to deliver Canada from, especially in the church. Then Jesus said, once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me my share of the estate? Let me pause right there. Keep it up. This would have implied in that cultural day that he wished the father was dead and he was cutting ties with him. Father... I really wish you were dead. I'm cutting ties with you. Give me my inheritance. I never want to see you again. That's what this would have communicated culturally in that day. So the father, in his goodness, went ahead and distributed between the two sons their inheritance. Shortly after, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry because there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing and thought, there are many workers at my father's house who all have all the food with plenty that they want to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house, and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never again be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, treat me like one of your employees. 
So the young son set off for home from a long distance away. His father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar, and great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. The father raced out to meet him, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. The father interrupted and said, son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, quick, bring me my best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulder. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. And bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For my beloved son, who was once dead, but now he's alive. Once he was lost, but now he is found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. Now the older brother was out working in the field. When he returned, when his brother returned and he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. And he called over one of the servants and asked, what's going on? The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older brother soon became angry and refused to go in to celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him, come and enjoy the feast with us. The son said, father, listen, how many years have I worked like a slave for you? performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son. You know what? He's a description of most of your modern-day North American church. Performance. Prove, produce, and perform. We see God as an employer instead of a father. But you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. You know what? He was right. Here's what the father says. Son still says, Never once have you given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends as this son of yours is doing here. Look at him. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living. I find it fascinating that the brother knew where he was. But didn't have the love and the ability to get out of the four walls of his father's house and go after him. And here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate him. The father said, my son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. We read this. I know that's a lot. We read this, but it's a perfect description of who the father is. This is what Jesus is doing when he's teaching these parables. He's not saying this is going to be a good Bible story to preach in churches 2,000 years from now. He's saying, guys, I'm going to tell you who my father is. This is who he is. A A father had two sons. And one son was so offended with the father that he came to him and said, I wish you were dead. I don't want to be a part of you anymore. Give me my inheritance. And this father is so good that he gives it to him. The son goes off, spends all his money, reckless living, and the son realizes, wait a minute, I have nothing. I'm eating pig slop. He doesn't even really repent. He goes back to the Father based on need. There was no repentance. There was no conviction. It was actually, I'm hungry. It was actually, you know what? My servants in my Father's house have it better than this. I'll go back. It wasn't even real repentance. It wasn't real conviction. It was need. Yet the Father is still there looking at him. Runs to him. Embraces him. Puts a robe on puts a ring of sonship on, which in that day would have represented this. Now, here's the deal. I know how I parent, a little bit different than how the father parents us. Because if my kids spend all my money, 
I'm not getting ready to give them authority to the checking account again on day one when they come home. But this father did. That seal of sonship would have mean you have authority now to make decisions on behalf of the family again. You have the ability to transact money, finances, buy, sell land. And he put the seal of sonship on his finger that would have communicated he has just as much authority now as the day he did when he left. Puts a robe on him, gets shoes. You ever heard, the, you know, we've heard in children's church about the armor of God. It's called the armor of God, not the armor of Rome. You know that, right? So we've created these pictures of Roman warfare armor. What if, what if the helmet of salvation was a crown of royalty? What if the breastplate of righteousness was a robe that signified who you are? What if the sword and the spirit wasn't just a sword, it was a scepter? What if the shoes were not metal plates to keep your feet from getting struck by a sword doing warfare? What if it was shoes of royalty that everywhere you walked, what you have on communicates that you belong to your Father in heaven? It's not the armor of Rome. It's the armor of God. (laughs) Throws them a party. Throws them a, 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 a complete, just massive celebration. And yet there's the elder brother doing what most of us do. We're mad and frustrated because our view of the Father is works-based. I'm going to work to gain approval from my Father, and that's the only way I know how to do this relationship thing. As long as I'm working hard, then your approval is on me. The Father doesn't see you any different when you're working hard. Matter of fact, some, some of our working is actually in vain. The Lord's beginning to teach me this over the last couple of years. The Scripture says this, Jesus did nothing until he saw the Father do it first. If I go up to you and I ask you, hey man, how's your week been? The most North American reply that we always give is, my week's been busy. Why? Because in North American culture, busyness equates to success. Jesus says, I do nothing until I see my Father do it. When was the last time you've told someone, hey, what you been up to the last couple weeks? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Haven't done a thing. It's this laboring to enter into rest thing. Number two, when we see God right, it helps us see ourselves right. There's going to be mass deliverance on how people see themselves. If I can get you just to see yourself the way God sees you. If you could begin to see yourself the way heaven sees you. If you can begin to really believe that heaven wants you more than hell wants you this unnecessary warfare that most of us go through would begin to cease. Heaven wants you more than hell wants you. Genesis 3, 3 through 5 says this, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God had said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. This is the serpent telling her, you will not surely die, the serpent told her, for God knows in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemy was trying to trick her into thinking that she wanted, she needed to be something that she already actually was. If you eat it, you'll be like God. That's why God doesn't. Well, she was already like God. She was already perfect. She was already complete. She was already like God. And so are you. It goes right back to the foundation that we started with. You are perfectly righteous in his eyes. 
You are already like God. And the enemy will try to get you on a treadmill of performance, trying to get you to do more so that you feel like you're closer to God by your works and your doing. It's not about your doing. It's about your being. It's about your being. The enemy has one goal, and it's to deceive you out of your divine identity. It's not to get you to sin. That's just a fruit of not knowing who you are. Sin's not even in the equation. If he can keep you from not knowing who you are, sin naturally follows. If you know who you are in Christ Jesus, all the obstacles and stumbling blocks just begin to fall to the wayside. I don't know if I'm going to have time to get through all of this because i got a lot more Bible. What I want to do is, why don't we get the keyboarder to come up and the team, and I'm just going to minister this last little bit because I know it's noon. And Peter even struggled, we talked about him last night, with seeing himself appropriately. Luke chapter 22, 54 through 64, this is probably one of the most powerful passages of Scripture to me personally that I've ever read. Luke 22, 54 through 64. This, is, this, this passage of Scripture has really wrecked me and changed my life about how to see God and how I see myself. That's what it says. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. When they arrested Jesus, Peter following at a distance, he was still right there close enough in the temple, in the courts, to be able to see what was going on. He was following at a distance. I believe it's such a prophetic picture of many Christians today. I'm going to get close enough to, like, I, 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 I'm close enough to kind of be associated with them, but I'm far enough away where I'm really not, type thing. Peter followed at a distance, verse 55, and when they had kindled the fire in the midst of the courtyard, they sat down together. Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked at him intently and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're saying. Let me pause right here. Let me just backtrack a little bit, because Jesus and Peter were walking along the day earlier, and Jesus tells Peter, You're going to deny me. Peter says, I will not deny you. Don't you know who I am? I'm Apostle Peter. I will go to the grave before I deny you. Peter was caught up in a works-based mentality, I believe, in this moment, in his own strength. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to teach you a valuable lesson out of this. You're going to deny me. As a matter of fact, when you hear the rooster crow the third time, it'll be a sign and a witness to bring to your remembrance of this word right now. Peter is sitting outside watching Jesus being questioned, slapped, spit upon. He's watching Jesus go through the very beginning portion of his arrest. Peter is close enough right there to watch what's happening, but there's still a group right around Peter that's saying, you know what, I know you. Aren't you one of his? No, I'm not. Not one of his followers. No, I'm not. Three different occasions. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. But Peter said on verse 60, I don't even know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Next verse is probably the most powerful. Verse 61. Verse 61. Probably the most powerful 
passage of scripture to me in all of the Bible. Peter is at his worst moment. He's just publicly denied the Lord. He sees Jesus as soon as the rooster crows. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Could you imagine the eyes that lock eyes with you in that moment? We would immediately go to shame and condemnation. Jesus was revealing something extremely powerful in this moment that he needed Peter to understand. When you're at your worst, I don't look away from you. I look right at you. And I don't need you to get caught up in your own worst moment. I need you just to get your eyes off that and just lock eyes with me. I believe what Jesus was saying is, don't look over there, Peter. Don't even worry about it. I told you it was going to happen. And I'm not going to show you a kind of father that's going to look away from you at your worst. I'm going to show you what the father really says about you. Even on your worst day, I'm going to still lock eyes with you. Look at me, Peter. Look at me. Just look at me. Look at these eyes of ravishing love. And Peter was taught a valuable lesson in that moment. He ran and wept bitterly. And it wasn't weeping in shame and in condemnation. I believe it was weeping of, that's the Father's love for me. That's the Father's love for me. We preach that Peter went back to his old ways when he went fishing. I don't think Peter was just disgruntled going back to his old life of business. I think Peter was trying to recapture something. I need to go back to where I first met him. I'm going to go back to that boat. I'm going to get on that water. And I'm just going to believe with everything in me that in the same geographical spot that I first met him, they said he was toiling all night. And I believe Peter knew. I just believe Peter probably knew the Lord was going to be walking along that beach. And John perceived it's the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to him, and recaptures the first encounter that he ever had right in the exact same spot. The Father's love for you, church, is not looking away from you at your worst. It's looking right at you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not upset with you. He's not mad with you. His loving eyes of kindness and goodness. I get accused all the time of people saying, you're overemphasizing the goodness of God. How can you do that? When it's infinity, there's no breath, no height, no width, no depth. There is nothing that can separate us from it. He's good. He's good. His name is good. And you know what he calls you? Good. He loves you. He's not disappointed with you, church. He's not angry with you this morning. He loves you. And I'm telling you, there's coming mass deliverance because when there's a group of people that can leave buildings like this and know who I am in Christ and feel and know the Father's pleasure over me, you begin to live your life in such a rewired way that everyone around you says, what do you have? That's not religion. That's not tradition. That is presence. That's power. And that is love. about you but I was trained that God looks away from me at my worst I was trained that I needed to go repent and fast and get my life back right with God every time I messed up and made a mistake and hear Jesus is saying that's not the religion and that's not the thing that I'm coming to teach after 13 times of pleading the blood of Jesus and 23 I'm sorry you know and God I'll never do it again then maybe I'll feel his pleasure and we've conditioned ourselves in the church subconsciously to do these things and Jesus is here saying I'm going to show you who the Father is at your worst I'm not going to look away from you I'm looking right at you because I'm not ashamed of you at your worst I love you 
at your worst because I don't see you any different at your worst than I do when you're at your best because you don't grow in righteousness. You just get greater understanding of righteousness. Is this okay? Some of you, you've been living in a spiral whirlwind of constant up and downs, of feeling like God loves you and He's pleased with you, and and, and other days feeling like you're just on the bottom and you, you don't have the pleasure of God. And I'm telling you, He sent me from Edmonton this morning to tell you when we're this next move of the Spirit, this next revival is going to be a love revival of righteousness, of people knowing who I am in Christ Jesus. And He loves you. He is pleased with this body. He is pleased with this church. He is pleased with this family. He is pleased with you. Yeah, but preaching, you don't know what happened this morning on the way in here. I said some things to my wife I shouldn't have, and maybe yesterday you messed up, and maybe you, you, you've, you've done things this past week that you shouldn't have. But listen, that's not who you are. That's not how he sees you. He's pleased with you. He's pleased with you. And that sounds like heresy right there. No, listen, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. The woman was caught in adultery in the very act. They said, Jesus, the law says, the law says, the law says, the law says, they were right. This woman deserves to be stoned. They were absolutely right. Jesus says, you that are without sin, cast the first stone. Here's the whole point. Jesus was without sin. Under the law of Moses, he had every legal right to pick up a stone and just blast, lay it in. Trump will teach you a lesson. He didn't, because that's not who the Father is, because that was the law of Moses. It's not who the Father is. The Father was manifest through Jesus by getting down on one knee, writing in the dirt. And I've heard a lot of preachers talk about what he was writing. I don't think he was writing anything. That's irrelevant. He was trying to get down real low because when you're in shame, what do you do? Your head's looking down. You are looking down like this. You don't want to make eye contact. And Jesus, I believe, was getting down to said, honey, just look at me. Just look at me. Look at me because when you lock eyes with me, you're going to experience my ravishing love of forgiveness, of grace, of goodness, and I don't condemn you. And yes, I have the right to pick up the stone, but that is not who my father is. He's good. He's good. I just feel like there's people that may need to respond to that. Well, I'm not even going to move on. I, I just feel like right there, people might need to just respond to that. Maybe you've been living your internal world in this treadmill of performance and trying to work your efforts and do better. Listen, I said it from the beginning. Religion is try harder. And the worst thing you can do when you feel like you're not meeting up or measuring up is just, I'm going to try harder. That doesn't work. What works is you seeing him right so that you can see yourself right. I just declare right now a grace over this body, a grace to see the Father for who he is. I declare a radical grace over this body to see him as good. Good, 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 good. I break off condemnation in the name of Jesus and I say over you, you are a faithful son, you're a faithful daughter. I say over you, the Lord is pleased with you. His pleasure is shining down on you this morning. 
He's not looking away from you. You may feel like you're at the bottom. You may feel like you're at your worst. And his eyes are saying, look at me right now. And look at me. Lock eyes with me. Come on, there's grace to recapture that. opportunity to start to move on the pathway that it's for you. It's a supernatural understanding, but I always love to encourage people that the physical doesn't dominate the supernatural, the supernatural dominates the physical. And so when you you hear me encourage people to, to move, to change your seat to to take a step forward to do something different what it is it's a supernatural understanding causing a physical reaction in our body if that makes sense to you and I want to give opportunity whatever that means to you Maybe it's you come up front for prayer. Maybe it's you, you, you go walk out in the foyer and give someone a hug. Maybe it's, it's just leaning over and giving someone a hug right now. Maybe it's coming up and just hanging out, lying down in the presence. Whatever it means to you, start to move on your pathway. Because the enemy loves to put blocks, roadblocks in pathways. But Jesus... He's kicked all the roadblocks away (laughs) with resurrected power. So I'm going to ask you, if you get a sense in your spirit, come up front right now. Right now. I truly believe right now. Just start moving. For whatever reason it might be, it might be to break off a religious mindset. It might be to break off something. It could be that you're frustrated at a pastor asking you to do something. Then don't come up front, but do something. Do something. 
not that long ago, I talked with somebody and they shared with me after the service. And they said I was, I wanted, I knew I should have responded, but I was so stubborn in my own spirit, I didn't want anyone telling me what I needed to do, but only God. Would you pray for me now? And I looked at him and said, no. I said, well, what do you mean? I'll pray for you. But there's a different moment of time that happens. That moment on the cross, we can never regain again. But we can experience the outflow from a resurrected Lord and Savior. And they said, well, 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 well I, I just didn't want to do what someone said to do. And I said, you don't have to do what someone says to do, but sometimes you have to do something to do something to break the chains because that person had been verbally abused and traumatized by a pastor by a leader in the past I want to encourage you it's interesting I see right now I, I actually see it's like a vision of the prodigal son but the father standing on the hill, excited and celebrating. Whatever that looks like, do something. We're gonna pray for you up here. If you need a miracle of healing, come up front. You need salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your special day. Anybody watching online right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all you have to do is believe on Him and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now and you will be saved. Maybe you've been struggling in your Christian walk right now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let the past go. Let the pain go. Because you are not, I love what Pastor Chris said. He doesn't look at you in sin. He looks at who you are and who he loves. He's not looking at you as a, as a mess. He's looking at you as more than a conqueror. That's how he sees us. So, Father, as we close this service out, but yet continue in your presence and your glory, I thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your love. I thank you that Jesus Christ was here to represent you. I thank you, Father, for this church called Windward and the churches in this valley and the churches of, of Canada and around the world for Summit Church and all the affiliated churches with Summit. We bless them and we say thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord God, for this is a day that you have made and we will celebrate and rejoice in this day. I pray for safe travel for, for Pastor Chris as he heads home to his wife and family. We pray blessings upon them, Lord God, as they get ready for the summer months ahead. And I thank you, Father, for your goodness, for the miracles we saw already today and last night, and for the many more that are yet to come. For the deliverance of Canada, in Jesus' name. And it doesn't look like the deliverances of the past. I thank you, Father, for you are a good, good God. In you, we put our trust. And let your joy 
fill us with strength. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, amen.